0: Well, again, I do want to say good morning. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. I encourage you now, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2 together. As we're going to start a new series this morning, uh, the title of of this message is the title of the series. It's rooted in and built up by God. You know, our call as Christians is to make disciples of all nations, This is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. He says, go, make disciples. He told us to baptize and to teach them. And so, specifically, over the next several weeks, we're going to uh, key in on that last half of the Great Commission, where Jesus said, teaching them to observe, that is to obey all things that I've commanded you. Now, the teaching aspect of this, we commonly refer to it as discipleship. Uh, But discipleship is kind of a word that we just throw around. Uh, If it's not evangelism, it must be discipleship. So any Bible study, well, that's discipleship. Things like that. And Bible study is definitely discipleship. But discipleship is more than just something you attend once a week or twice a week. It is a lifestyle of obedience that we live in community with one another. And we're going to spend a lot of time breaking all of that down here, but as we begin, uh, we're going to look at the book of Colossians. This is a letter written to the church in the city of Colossae by the apostle Paul while he was imprisoned. Now, the book of Colossians closely mirrors the book of Ephesians. So as we study through this, you're going to think, hey, I've studied this before. I've read this, and you have. There's there's similar content between Ephesians and Colossians. Not only is there similar content, but there's a similar breakdown. The first half of the book is theological, right, beliefs. The second half of the book is practical application. In light of what I believe... This is how I should live. And so that's how these books go together. But there is one difference between those two. And it's the focus or the emphasis. The book of Ephesians is written to the church and it focuses on the church. How is the church to to live in a right relationship with Christ and with one another? While the book of Colossians is going to be written to the church about Christ. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Why is he important? Why should I know what the scriptures teach of him? Well, the one big thing is this, that if we are going to be, if we're going to grow spiritually, our roots must run deep. So let's look at it together. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 6. I'm going to ask if you can and would stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. He says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or the elements of the world, and not after Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, I just pray that as we come to this moment, that your power would be evident by what's said. That it wouldn't be my thoughts or interpretations or anyone else's, but it would truly be the Spirit of God teaching us what it means to know you, to worship you, to live for you. So, Father, as your spirit is speaking, would you help us to have open ears and open hearts to not only hear the word, but to receive the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If we're going to grow up spiritually, our roots must run deep. What does it mean to be rooted in and built up by God. Well, spiritually growing up, it begins with being rooted in Christ. That is to say, to be confident in what the Bible reveals about who is Jesus. Now what we see, we start in verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. This is speaking of the moment which you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you understood Jesus is the Savior. So you have received God's grace through faith and you have become saved. This is the starting point in our walk with God. And we're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit. But one of the biggest things that we have to do that a lot of uh, Christians like to debate, is theology really that important? Now, for those of you that don't know this, full disclosure, I am a nerd. I am proud to be a nerd. I love word studies. I love the Greek. I love to just do those types of things. All right, so theology obviously is very important to me. However, it ought to be important to all of us because we cannot live rightly, if we do not first believe rightly. Theology is the revelation of who God is according to scripture. So what do we learn about Jesus in the first half of Colossians? Now this is going to be a very quick overview. Okay, But it starts off in chapter 1 verse 14. What we learn is that forgiveness of sins and our redemption is through Jesus only The only way that we can be or have received Christ is if we have stopped trying to earn our way to heaven. If we have stopped trying to believe that I'm good enough so God's going to let me in. We have to believe the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus is the only way that a person can be saved. That forgiveness and redemption are found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so then he progresses. Chapter 1 verse 15. He gives us something astounding. He says, who is the image of the invisible God? This is Paul saying, the man Jesus that you saw and heard about walking the earth. He isn't just man. He is also God. And so... Paul is laying out that Jesus is altogether different than anyone else who has ever lived. That while he was on the earth, yes, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. Now, I'm just going to tell you, that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. But it doesn't mean that we can go, "I, I can't understand, so I'm going to set it to the side. If we are going to worship and live rightly, we must believe Jesus Rightly. And so then he goes on in chapter 1, verse 16. We, we're we familiar with this. It says, for by him were all things created. So this means that this Jesus, who is God, was present and active in creation. So God has not uh, left. He, he is not distant from us. He is very uh, intimately involved. The very end of verse 16 says, all things were created by him and for him. See, you and I don't get to call the shots of our life because we didn't create ourselves and God did not create us for ourselves. Rather, we are created by God and for God. Therefore, my life is to reflect the glory of God to those around me. This is what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. He goes on, chapter 1, verse 17, and into 18 uh, a little bit. He begins to talk about the fact that Jesus is the head of creation. He was there, He was part of creating everything that we see. He is holding it all together. And then, chapter 1, verse 18, He brings it even closer to us when He says, and is the head of the body. The church. And so not only is he the present, active God of creation, but he is the head of the body of Christ. The head controls every aspect of the body. It tells the body what to do, where to go, how to do it, when to do it, and these things. The Old Testament, the law, all of the Old Testament festivals, they pointed to one person, Jesus That's why when you and I read the Old Testament, we need to ask the question, where do I see Jesus in this passage? What is this showing me about him? You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So everything in the Old Testament points us to Christ. And this is important because we have got to reject the notion of making the Bible man-centered or that the Bible just teaches good moral lessons. Scripture is more than morals. It is revealing the person and the work of God and how you and I can be saved by him, how we can have a relationship with him. And nowhere in Scripture are we the hero of the story. The hero is always God. And so, Scripture is meant to point us to Christ in all that we do. And then we come to a, a question that our society continues to wrestle with, uh, as every other generation has. What is truth? You know, Pilate asked a, a question when Jesus was handed over to him before he was condemned. Pilate says, what is truth? The amazing thing about that question is, Jesus has answered it in the previous verse. John 18, verse 37 says, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In that one verse, Jesus makes three astounding claims. He is saying, number one, I am king. You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, we have to make Jesus king or we have to make him Lord. You and I don't make him king and Lord. He is king and Lord, okay? So he is saying, I am a king. The second reason, uh, truth he says, is why he came. He has come into this world to give evidence, to bear witness to the truth. Who's the truth? Well, he answered in John 14. He said, I am the way The truth and the life. And then no man comes to the Father but by me. So it says, I am a king who has come to redeem my kingdom. See, every other false cult in the world, every false religion sets it up that the servants die for the king. However, Jesus has said in John eighteen thirty seven that the king has left his throne in glory and come to die for the sinners that we might be redeemed to him so that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, we see him claiming that he is the ultimate king who has come for a purpose of redeeming the lost from their sins. That we will not die for him to earn our way to heaven, but rather he will die so that we can have the right and the privilege to be his children. This is who Christ is. We learn later on in Colossians 2, verses 10 to 15, that all authority is in Christ. Now this keeps exactly with what Jesus said in Matthew 28. You know, we talk about the Great Commission. We typically focus on verses 19 and 20. You really need to back it up one verse. Why should we as disciples go make disciples, baptize, and teach? Because the previous verse, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Because I have authority, because you are my uh, servants, you are going to obey me by doing this making disciples so the authority has been given to him the authority i have as a pastor is from god the authority i have as a husband is from god as a father is from god everything i do stems from the authority of who god is and it influences or should influence how we view life every person in here has a has a world view. You look at your own life, you look at circumstances and events around you, and you interpret them based on a lens. The disciple is going to have a biblical worldview, which means this, my life and everything in my life and going on around me, I'm going to ask the question, okay, what does scripture say about this? I'm going to make the decisions I make based off of what the Bible teaches. Now, that's not the only worldview that exists. There, there are secular worldviews. There are man-centered worldviews that say, well, there is no absolute truth, therefore I get to decide what's true, and I'm gonna handle my life my way. We, we know people who operate within these, these things. They don't care who they hurt. They just wanna make themselves happy and make their life easier. Okay, that's a worldview. But if we claim to be christian then we have to have a biblical worldview that says everything that's going on around me everything that's going on in me is rooted in scripture i'm going to interpret what's going on politically through what scripture says what's happening financially through scripture how i should be married through scripture how i should be a father through scripture how i should view entertainment through scripture Okay, this is what it means to be rooted in Christ. It means to know him rightly. And because I know him rightly, then I can do the next part. Or it's God doing it in me. It says, rooted, verse seven, and built up, notice, in him. This is work that God is doing in us and through us. Now in verse six, the very end he says so walk ye the the metaphor of walk in scripture refers to your lifestyle okay just as you have been saved by Christ now live for Christ that's verse 6 Jesus didn't save us so that we could continue to live however we wanted okay if you and I are to grow spiritually we will be saved by grace, but then we will rely on God's grace to help us to live for God's glory. We, we see over and over, the result of right belief is right living. Paul never had an issue with this division here, but we, we tend to fight this a little bit. There are those who go, well, I've got right beliefs, but it's not making a difference in your life. Okay, here's the, here's the part of it. You're getting information, but you're not being transformed. If all we do is come in, whether a worship service or a Bible study, and get information the Bible says, but it doesn't change our life, then the best way to describe us is a, the, a theistic atheist. That's somebody who claims to believe in God, but is living as though God doesn't exist. And if I can be bold enough to say, I believe there are a lot of theistic atheists in churches. We we, we know of God, but we are not living for God. But then there's the other side that goes, listen, we don't argue about theology. We just want to love each other. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? We just want to love each other and get along. Okay, but if there's not an absolute truth, then how do you know what love is? If all life is, is doing the right things for whatever reason, then you're striving for moralism. I'm being a good person, but good people aren't necessarily children of God. See, morals don't get us to heaven. The blood of Jesus Christ gets us there. Because we have been saved by the blood, we will do good works, but we don't do good works in order to get to heaven. And so we need theology. We need a right belief of who God is so that we can then in turn do the right things. They've got to go together here. Now, how does God do this? The primary way that God accomplishes this actually in Colossians 3. All right, look there with me, Colossians 3, verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing us, encouraging, poking, prodding, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. What Paul said in that one verse, I believe, is a fitly timed word for churches as a whole today. The foundation of worship must be the word of God. Everything we do in a worship service has to be centered and focused on that because the Bible is the sole authority for a Christian in a church. A Christian in a church don't ever go, well, what do you think we ought to do? Rather, they say, let us pray and see what God would have us do. There's a difference. Now, notice one of the unique ways that we can allow the word to dwell in us richly. He, he says, again, verse 16. He says, admonish, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace. Have you ever noticed that you going through school? You had to memorize timelines or maybe the preamble of the Constitution or part of the Declaration of Independence. What did teachers always use to help you memorize it? Music. I mean, they, they use music. Why? Because music aids memorization. It's why a lot of times when uh, you're teaching your children the alphabet, guess what? You put it to music. Now, music is vital. And should be vital in our worship services as long as the words that we sing are biblically accurate. Just because it's a fun song to sing, if it's teaching a wrong theology, then yes, you're hearing about God, but you're not really hearing about the one true God. So what happens is you are not worshiping God as he is, but rather God as you want him to be. And that's called idolatry. So we sing rightly of who God is. And I love it because long before there were ever worship wars over music style in churches, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he told us what songs we ought to be singing. Notice this. This is just fascinating. He begins by saying psalms. What's that? Don't overthink this, please. Psalms, the book of Psalms. Most of the psalms were set to metered music. We ought to be singing the psalms. Okay. Then he goes, look, look at the next word. He said, and hymns. Now, Paul did not have a hymn book like you and I have. Okay? There, there wasn't the, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem hymn book. Okay. What does he mean by hymn then? He means songs that we sing to God about God. You know why I love hymns? You know why they are a staple in our 11 o'clock service as well as the 830? For this reason. Hymns teach incredible theology. Man, You, you want to know who God is? Grab a hymn book because 90% of them, 99% are terrific theology. Okay, uh, I'm going to be the old guy here, and I'm okay with that because I am. Um, I think we need to recover to a degree hymns within services because we're getting close to a generation who is forgetting who God is because the hymns teach theology so well but now don't don't feel bad if you're a contemporary music guy I love that too and don't feel like the apostle Paul let you out because notice he doesn't stop there he says in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs now, a lot of this can relate to what we consider as contemporary music in this way. The hymns were us singing about God to God. The spiritual songs were singing to each other about the Christian life. So a lot of the contemporary stuff is designed to encourage us to live our life as a living sacrifice to God. By the way, it's exactly what Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You need it all. It's it's what he's teaching. But the, the whole aspect of it is we're singing about God to teach ourselves about God. And then we are singing to each other to remind ourselves of how we are to live. Okay, that's why one of the biggest things I would encourage you to do when you're here and you're singing a song, as loud as you can sing it. Don't worry about the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Okay, I I don't sing because I I sing off note. That's okay. God sees your heart. Singing is a form of worship to our Savior, to our God, to our Creator. You know, the church could have saved herself a lot of fussing, fighting, bickering, backbiting, division, and discord if she would have just heeded the, the Word of God to begin with and made worship about God. And not our personal preferences. Paul just told us that the ideal worship service has three aspects to it that leads to a fourth. The first one, you pray the word. You know, a lot of people come and go, I don't know what the word of God, I don't know what the will of God is. I always ask them, is your Bible open? When you read a passage, whether it's a verse, whole chapter, whatever, ask yourself a few questions. And you're, you're praying through it. What does it reveal about God? Okay, the, the second, is there any sin that maybe it's pointing out in my life? Confess it to him. And then third, what is God asking me to do in this text? And ask him for help in doing it. When you do that, you're praying the word of God. So you know that you're praying in the will of God. Which God says he delights in and answers. So we pray the word. The second thing that we ought to do is we ought to sing the word. Every song we sing ought to lift high the name of Jesus. And then, third, we preach the word. Notice, we, we don't want to get taken captive. Look at verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or the elements of the world. What he's saying is don't get caught up in people's opinions. And worldly traditions get caught up in the Word of God. Preach what the Bible says. And just know this, you know, sometimes we get scared to do that. Because it's offensive. But Scripture says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. So no matter how much you try to sugarcoat it, it's still gonna be offensive. So you might as well preach the word and please God and let him handle from there. So you pray the word, you sing the word, you preach the word, and all of that in 60 to 75 minutes-ish encourages you and equips you to, watch, go out and obey the word. That's how you lift high the name of Jesus in a worship service whether you're doing old school uh, hymns or, or contemporary or a mixture of both or whatever, as long as it is about God to God and encouragement of one another to go out and be the church. All right, we didn't come to church, we are the church, so the church can go out as mobile to reach the lost. That's how you lift high the name of Jesus. That's what he's calling us to do. And here's the great thing about it. When you pray the word, sing the word, and preach the word, those roots Start to go down a little bit further. You get anchored in who Jesus is. And you get excited because you see his love and his grace. And you want to go out and you want to share it with those that have never experienced it. So if we're going to do that, how do we do it? We've got to ground our life in the Bible. You know, if the church is ever going to walk in the power of God, if we're ever going to see the manifest presence of God We've got to get back to Scripture. We've got to make everything that we do about what does God say, what is God asking us to do. We have to base our life on what Scripture says, and then we've got to obey it. We, we don't want to become spiritually stopped up. All right? We, we don't want to just keep taking in information, take it in, take it in, take it in, take it in, and none of it flowing out. Our roots cannot be in ourselves, but they've got to be in Christ. And there's only one way this is ever going to happen. It's right there in Colossians, believe it or not. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. We will not develop deep roots. We will not be built up and bear fruit until Christ becomes our life. Not a part of our life. Our life. Some people want to believe, all I got to do is You know, say a prayer and and walk an aisle and, hey, I'm good. I gave my heart to Jesus. That's great. He doesn't just want your heart, he wants your life. Maybe the reason you're not experiencing that spiritual growth that you are expecting right now is because of the sin in your soil. You haven't given him every aspect of your life. You haven't given him your marriage. You haven't given him your family, your finances, your job, your hobbies. He's a part of your life, but he hasn't become your life. And when that happens, you're going to grow a little bit. But you're not going to be where God intends for you to be. And so maybe what God's asking you to do this morning in grounding your life in him, is to surrender your life to him. Maybe you've never come to the place where you acknowledge that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for you and he's the only way to be saved. That seed has been planted and it's watered. It's time to allow God to let it start growing. It's time to surrender to him today. And maybe part of God being Your life, is there some things in your life that you're still holding on to really tight? You've opened up the doors of most of your life to God, but you still got some that, that are closed. And here's the thing about closed doors to God. You may have closed that door to God, but it's wide open to Satan. He's wrecking your life. Because you've closed off that aspect of your life to God. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be embarrassed. You have to own it. God already knows it's there. He says, why I came and died? To redeem all of you. So I'm going to ask as we're closing... Is there some aspect of your life that you've closed off to God that's stunning your spiritual growth, that's harming your ability to glorify Him? If so, we're going to sing another song in just a moment. And As we sing, I don't want you to sing. I want you to respond to God. The rest of the church, we're going to be singing. But don't allow what you do for God to cause you to not respond to God. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Father, we thank you for this, this brief time of being able to open up your word and, and to worship. Lord, we've been able to pray, we've been able to sing, and now we've been able to, to study your word. And God, I pray every bit of it has is, is been about you and not me. And not just about those who are here. But Father, we know, just like we read in Romans 8, how all things work together for good to those who love God. We know that every person who is here, they are not here by circumstance, but by divine appointment from a loving, gracious, merciful Father. There's something you wanted to say. And so, Father, I pray that we have heard it. Whatever it is. Lord, maybe it's you're calling someone to finally surrender their heart and their life to you. That today would be that day of salvation. For some, there's, there's a door that you're trying to knock down. So that you can get in and begin to work in their life. And you can change who they are for your glory and their good. So Father, I'm just going to pray that as your word has gone out, resting on the promise that it will not return void, but that it will accomplish what you are at, what you have declared it to accomplish. Claiming that promise, Father, let us respond in worship in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing uh, this last song, it's a familiar song, Here I Am to Worship. I just want to invite you, if you need to respond to God, let's respond. Amen. I'm going to try something different this morning. We're going to respond to the Lord this morning. The Bible says that where two or more I gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. The Bible also declares that we worship the Lord by spirit and in truth. So, Westlake, we're going to try something a little different this morning. We're going to try to lift our hands in worship as we begin to worship the Lord this morning. And if you can't lift them up all the way, lift them up halfway. Because halfway is better than no way. So join us by the lifting of our hands this morning as we worship the Lord.